Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Did the scientists really know? Will it happen today? Will it? Look, look. See for yourself. The children pressed to each other like so many roses. So many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years. Thousands upon thousands of days. Compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain. With the drum and gush of water. With sweet crystal fall of showers and the concussion of storms so heavy that they were tidal waves, come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain, and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus. And this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women, who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization, and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping. Yes, yes. Margaret stood apart from them, from these children who could even remember a time when there wasn't rain, and rain and rain. They were all nine years old, and if there had been a day seven years ago, when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes, at night, she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming, and remembering gold, or yellow crayon or a coin large enough to buy the world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face and the body, and the arms and legs and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum, the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces upon the roof, the walk, the gardens, the forest, and their dreams were gone. All day yesterday they had read in class about the sun, about how like a lemon it was and how hot, and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it. I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just an hour. That was Marga's poem, read in a quiet voice in the still classroom, while the rain was falling outside. Oh, you didn't write that, protested one of the boys. I did, said Margaret. I did, William, said the teacher. But that was yesterday. Now the rain was slackening, and the children were crushed, in great thick windows. Where's the teacher? She'll be back. She'd better hurry. We'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margaret stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost in the rain for years, and the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes, and red from her mouth, and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph, dusted from an album, whitened away. If she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood, separate, staring at the rain and the loud wet world beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at, said William. Margaret said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove, but she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away. And this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them, and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness and life and, ga <coughs> and games, her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun and the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then, of course, the biggest crime of all was that she had come only five years. <coughs> was that she had come here only five years ago from Earth, and she remembered the sun. 
and the sky was when she was four in Ohio, and they, they had been on Venus all their lives, and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out, and had long since forgotten the color and heat of it, and the way it really was. But Margaret remembered, it's like a penny, she said once, eyes closed. No, it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them, watching the pattern <coughs> and watched the patterning window. And once a month ago, she'd refused to shower in the school shower rooms, had clutched her hands to her, he her ears over her head, screaming the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly she sensed it. She was different, and they knew her difference, and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year. It seemed vital to her that they do so. It would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family, and so the children hated her for all these reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away, the boy gave her another shove. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time she turned and looked at him, and looked at him, and what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him, and then, understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Oba Margaret whispered, her eyes helplessly. But this is the day. The scientists predict. They say. They know. The sun. All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margaret, falling back. They surged about her, caught her up and bore her protesting, and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel, a room, a closet, where they slammed door, where they slammed and locked the door. They stood looking at the door and saw it trembled from her beating and throwing herself against it. They, th they heard her muffled cries, then smiling, they turned and went out back down the tunnel just as the teacher arrived. Ready, children? She glanced at her watch. Yes, said everyone. Are we all here? Yes. The rain slacked still more. They crowded to the huge door and the rain stopped. It was as if the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption. Something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus, thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise. All the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and in second ripped the film, <coughs> ripped the film from the protect projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide, which did not move or tremor. The world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed, or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back and the smell of the silent, waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze and it was very large, and the, <coughs> and the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color, and the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the, the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? 
much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus, that grew and never stopped growing, tumultuously, even as you watched it. It was a nest of octopi clustering up, great arms of flesh-like weed wavering, flowering in this brief springtime. It was the color of rubber and ash. This jungle from the many years without sun it was the color of stones and white cheeses and ink. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress and heard a sigh and squeak under the resilient and alive. They ran among the trees. They slipped and fell. They pushed each other. They played hide-and-seek and tag. But most of all, they squinted at the sun until tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to the yellowness and that amazing blueness and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air and listened and listened to the silence which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running. And then, in the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. Borrowing a Match by Stephen Leacock you might think that borrowing a match upon the street is a simple thing, but any man who has ever tried it will assure you that it is not, and will be prepared to swear to the truth of my experience of the other evening. I was standing on the corner of the street with a cigar that I wanted to light. I had no match. I waited till a decent, ordinary-looking man came along. Then I said, Excuse me, sir, but could you oblige me with the loan of a match? A match, he said. Why, certainly. Then he unbuttoned his overcoat and put his hand in the pocket of his waistcoat. I know I have one, he went on, and I'd almost swear it's in the bottom pocket. Or hold on, though. I guess it may be in the top. Just wait till I put the parcels down on the sidewalk. Oh, don't trouble, I said. It's really of no consequence. Oh, it's no trouble. I'll have it in a minute. I know there must be one in here somewhere. He was digging his fingers into his pocket as he spoke. But you see, this isn't the waistcoat I generally... I saw that the man was getting excited about it. Well, never mind, I protested. That isn't the waistcoat you generally... Why, it doesn't matter. Now hold on, the man said. I've got one of the cursed things in here somewhere. I guess it must be in with my watch. No, it's not there either. Wait till I try my coat. If that confounded tailor only knew enough to make a pocket so that a man could get at it. He was getting pretty well worked up now. He had thrown down his walking stick and was plunging at his pockets with his teeth set. It's that cursed young boy of mine, he hissed. This comes of his fouling my pockets. By God, perhaps I won't harm him up when I get home. Say, I'll bet that it's in my hip pocket. You just hold up the tail of my overcoat a second till I... No, no, I protested again. Please don't. Take all this trouble. It really doesn't matter. I'm sure you needn't take off your overcoat. And oh, pray don't throw away your letters and things in the snow like that. One autumn, I went to spend the hunting season with some friends in a chateau in Picardy. My friends were fond of practical jokes. I do not care to know people who are not. When I arrived, they gave me a princely reception, which at once awakened suspicion in my mind. They fired off rifles, embraced me, made much of me, as if they expected to have great fun at my expense. I said to myself, Look out, old ferret. They have something in store for you. During the dinner, the mirth was excessive, exaggerated, in fact. I thought, here are people who have more than their share of amusement, and apparently without reason, they must have planned some good joke. Assuredly, I am to be the victim of the joke. Attention, 
During the entire evening, everyone laughed in an exaggerated fashion. I scented a practical joke in the air, as a dog scents game. But what was it? I was watchful, restless. I did not let a word or a meaning or a gesture escape me. Everyone seemed to me an object of suspicion, and I even looked distrustfully at the face of the servants. The hour struck for retiring, and the whole household came to escort me to my room. Why? They called to me goodnight. I entered the apartment, shut the door, and remained standing. Without moving a single step, holding the wax candle in my hand, I heard laughter and whispering in the corridor. Without doubt, they were spying on me. I cast a glance around the walls, the furniture, the ceiling, the hangings, the floor. I saw nothing to justify suspicion. I heard persons moving about outside my door. I had no doubt they were looking through the keyhole. An idea came into my head. My candle may suddenly go out and leave me in darkness. Then I went across to the mantelpiece and lighted all the wax candles that were on it. After that, I cast another glance around me. Without discovering anything, I advanced with short step, carefully examining the apartment. Nothing. I inspected every article, one after the other. Still nothing. I went over to the window. The shutters. Large wooden shutters were open. I shut them with great care, and then drew the curtains, enormous velvet curtains, and placed a chair in front of them so as to have nothing to fear from outside. Then I cautiously sat down. The armchair was solid. I did not venture to get into the bed. However, the night was advancing. I ended by coming to the conclusion that I was foolish. If they were spying on me as I supposed, they must. While waiting for the success of their joke, they had been preparing for me, have been laughing immoderately at my terror. So I made up my mind to go to bed. But the bed was particularly suspicious looking. I pulled at the curtains. They seemed to be secure. All the same, there was danger. I was going perhaps to receive a cold shower both from overhead or perhaps the moment I stretched myself out to find myself sinking to the floor with my mattress. I searched in my memory for all the practical jokes of which I ever had experienced, and I did not want to be caught. Ah, certainly not, certainly not. Then I suddenly bethought myself of a precaution which I considered ensured safety. I caught hold of the side of the mattress gingerly and very slowly drew it toward me. It came away, followed by the sheets and the rest of the bedclothes. I dragged all these objects into the very middle of the room, facing the entrance door. I made my bed over again as best I could, at some distance from the suspected bedstead, and the corner which had been filled with such anxiety. Then I extinguished all the candles, and groping my way, I slipped under the bedclothes. For at least another hour, I remained awake, staring at the slightest sound. Everything seemed quiet in the chateau, and I fell asleep. I fell asleep. I must have been in deep sleep for a long time, but all of a sudden I was awakened with a start with the fall of a heavy body tumbling right on top of my own, and at the same time I received on my face, on my neck, and on my chest a burning liquid which made me utter a 